<laughs> so make sure you speak right into the microphone because it's it's for everyone to hear, but also for the recording. The recording to hear you. And as I say, if you want to introduce yourself on the tape, introduce yourself. If you do not want to introduce yourself, just ask the question. Well, thanks for coming to Ottawa. Mm -hmm. uh, my name is Ken Billings. Uh, one of my hats is uh, an editor for DigiLeak Canada. It's a social justice issues site for called News Not Noise. It's the slogan. Mm -hmm. And um, I just had a few comments and questions or something to put forward. One thing is in Toronto uh, recently, or in the Toronto area, uh, GM, the GM plant closing. Um, nothing has been, uh, I've heard, really discussed. Like in World War II, we shut down car plants for two years, and uh, we did all kinds of drastic things because it ha you know, had to be done. But now that this plant is closing, and you know, sort of like the backdrop of NAFTA, but uh, it, um, there's no, not one of the parties I've heard suggest, or the union, that they form a co-op and uh, produce mass transit, get the government to lend them the money. Uh, in Canada, we had the Bank of Canada, it was a public bank before Pierre Elliott Trudeau gave it to the private sector. But we had no interest loans from 1938 to 1974, and we built this country on that. With, and we paid off the World War II debt, the first of the G7 countries. Since then, we've given $1.2 billion of interest to the, to the banks that they shouldn't have gotten. Anyway, in that, we could be lending money to the unions. They could be producing these, these uh, mass transit, and uh, we could have an industry. Mm -hmm. And we have an election coming, and nobody's even suggested anything like that. So that boggles my mind. <laughs> The other part was on, um, you were talking about uh, people getting a living wage. And part of that, of course, in the last 40 years, corporations have been writing, writing policy, government policy, right? So they're having their way. But I mean, here we got now IKEA, Walmart, LCBO. They're all paying people less than 30 hours a week. You know, so we should be fighting to make it mandatory that 80, 90% of the people have full-time jobs with full benefits. Mm. So uh, I guess that's my two main points. I can <laughs> go on, but thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. One of the things that I don't think that we talk about enough is like we're witnessing the collapse of the liberal order, right? We're, we're, we're witnessing the, the collapse of the post-war period where the welfare state was there to take care of people in a whole bunch of different ways. And part of what fueled the, the welfare state is the memory of how horrible the 30s and the poverty of the 30s was and how horrible it was to send two generations of, of, of people to war. And I mean, like, you know, the, the global death toll of World War I, the Spanish flu, the global death toll of World War II and the Holocaust was enough to make people say, wait a minute, like how can we arrange society to help take care of people in, in a different way, right? How can we, the, the, the explosion of public services, the explosion of colleges and universities and, and public education and public hospitals, taking that away from religious orders. Like that was the mentality behind building the welfare state is how do we take care of people and, and, and save people from the ravages of capitalism that we have seen play out before. 
there is now, what, five generations of people with no memory of that at all. And the further we get away from that memory, it is completely distant, that scale of horror. Of course, there's people that have direct experience with fleeing war and fleeing destruction, but the tens of millions of people killed globally over the course of three decades, we don't have that memory anymore. And so trying to, trying to say that we need to go back to something that was a response to something is very difficult. And so what we find ourselves doing is try to save it a little bit, right? The proliferation of part-time work is like, uh, okay, we need to get better full-time jobs or how do we shut down Ford or how do we shut down factories when the globally integrated market w literally prevents that from happening in certain ways, right? We could maybe blockade, but people are not there. And so, I mean, this is where... Unifor needs to be, Unifor, I talked about them because, of course, they're the ones that represent the, the Oshawa Workers' Plant, Unifor 222. They need to be the ones doing their best to do political education. And there are a lot of workers at Unifor 222. Like, there's some really radical folks, especially that got elected to their executive, talking about how do we electrify the cars? How do we start to transition towards building other forms of transportation? But they also need to stop pretending that the liberals are their friends. Mm -hmm which is a huge problem in the labor movement. Mm -hmm. There are way, and the NDP as well. I mean, people say the NDP is a labor party, but like what the fuck proof is that other than the fact that people say that, mm -hmm. right? And so there's like one of the things that I learn so much from Black Lives Matter is forget the wins that you get from a government. The wins from win, mm -hmm. if you will. <laughs> you never said that, eh? That's <laughs> no, I didn't. Huh? Uh, forget those those the, the 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 small victories that you can get from a from a government because they will be quickly undone yeah. by someone like Ford. Yeah. And and the reality is, if public nationalizing and shutting down industry is not happening, the reason it's not happening is because the the workers aren't there. They're not there mentally yet. They don't understand how, what that means. What's the stop point? Are we all going to get shot and killed? Are, we, are, are our children all going to be seized from us? And if the answer to those questions are like, oh, I don't know, then you have to do that politi political education to get them to a point. Because at the end of the day, there isn't going to be a single labor leader that's going to declare anything that's going to happen. And there's not going to be a single activist on the shop floor that's going to declare something to happen. It's, a, it's, it's organizing and it comes out of collective struggle. And so what we need to do is create those conditions for struggle and, and bring people together to grapple with these ideas to say, okay, now is the time that we shut down Oshawa. Now is the time that we, uh, that we, that we stop tangoing through NAFTA if we can. Um, but we've, we've divested that power to, to leadership, whether it's the union or to uh, leadership of the country. And some of that is like in advance of an election, an election is an opportunity to elevate different ideas. It's like the best kind of opportunity that you can have to do like some serious mass political education for free, <laughs> you know, like you can just get your message out there if you want. And like, you know, I know there's all sorts of thoughts about whether elections are useful or whatever, but I don't think anyone can deny that people are paying attention to ideas before an election in a way that they're maybe not you know, right now in Ontario, going to be paying attention to what people are thinking in terms of ideas. And I think that if people are not talking about things like nationalization of, of certain industries, it's because they, they haven't had the political education necessary to think that it's possible. And um, you mentioned BLM. That made me think about, you know, what our real goals were. Like, we had goals, like demands and stuff that was like, you know, uh, useful demands 
<laughs> but like the real, the real goal, like 2014, the real goal, we wanted people in this country to talk about anti-blackness and not laugh. Because in 2014, if you talked about anti-black racism and there's black people in the room who know about this, like people would laugh at you. Like be like, why, why are you making a qualification to racism? And now people don't laugh. People have, like we've changed the lexicon. We, like, we, we focused on changing culture so that people could understand that there was a different phenomena here that they maybe couldn't recognize, but a whole sector of society was experiencing it. And we needed people to recognize it. And we won that fight, hands down. And we could win something like, say, my pet peeve, I don't know why we don't talk about nationalizing communications. I don't know why Rogers and Bell have to have everything. Like, the internet is necessary. It should be a public service. Like, we, that is something that we could decide collectively um, as unions, maybe uh, telecommunications workers could decide that, you know, maybe what we want to do in advance of a federal election is do a lot of public education on what it would mean to nationalize communication, have a baseline that everyone must have access to, that the government must provide. And I guarantee you right away, it will be weird to some people to think about that. And then if you just keep on, you have a, have a plan of how you're going to shift culture to make it like possible, make it possible. People think that it's, make people think that it's possible. Have people talk about it in advance of an election. It won't be such a out of this world idea. For folks who are following the Toronto election, there was a candidate, Saron Gabrasselassi, who talked about free transit. And at first it was like, people were like, mm, what is she talking about free transit? And then there was a whole bunch of op-eds that were written about it as she just kept talking about it, put the ideas out, um, had the arguments in debates, and it was like, this is actually not a weird idea. How, what, is, it, is it that strange to have people be able to move for free? Maybe not, <laughs> you know, like I, it, it's possible to have these ideas um, come to fruition in our society, but what it takes is a commitment to doing that political education. Mm. So Nora, you were talking about how uh, in order for labor movements to be effective, there needs to be economic disruption. So I guess this is more of a comment that it's been festering in my mind, and I'm just open to hearing your ideas on it. Um, I feel like the need for economic disruption is something that nobody on the labor side wants and nobody in politics wants. And it's because things suck, but they're not that bad. Mm -hmm. Like literally, we don't know what a world war that impacts Canadians is. Yes, we send troops over for peacekeeping, but to have that in your front door, it's far from our memory. It's in the history books, if you're even taught it properly. And so uh, economic disruption, especially in light of the 2009 um, subprime mortgage crisis, it's like, we think we know what it is. It's like, oh, no, 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 we don't want that. Mm -hmm. So we want things to change, but not so rapidly that, you know, our free market economy is somehow inconvenienced. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess, uh, so that's my statement. I guess my question is like, how do you get people, I, and I've seen it in labor. I've seen, not, I'm not going to say collective apathy, but collective caution. And it's like, I don't know, things may not be bad, but things could be better. 
And we don't have to cross the line of full-on economic, like us, to what you said, us crossing the line, us, you know, getting yelled at does not create economic disruption. And um, I just, I see how both sides, both the politicians and the, the labor movement are both like towing the line. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good point because people are really afraid to lose what they have. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the line that things can get worse is very indicative of where we are today because household debt is at a record high, right? People are living paycheck to paycheck in a way that they have not lived paycheck to paycheck in a long time. The economic divide is is, is growing rapidly. And and the part of the rise of the far right is this economic anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. Like this, this, that's part of what fuels it. In fact, it probably fuels the majority of it with anyone that has a brain, right? Everyone that doesn't have a brain is Maxime Bernier and his fucking friends. And so and so, it's it's a fair comment. It's like, well, like w- things could get worse. It's like, okay, things are fucking bad. By every measure, things are already really bad. And so then the question becomes, what are we willing to do to make things better? Because we will not make things better if we do nothing. And so there can be small, small, small tinkering of, of certain policy. And, and these, these are kinds of the debates that you would have, uh, you know, on the union floor. It's like, uh, yeah, we can call for this to be improved or this to be improved. But we're not going on strike to demand something massive, right? I, a good example might be the, the Phoenix payroll situation, right? Where um, it is... Uh, I mean, I respect a lot of folks at PSAC. I work with folks at PSAC. I don't understand how there hasn't been a work disruption over Phoenix, mm-hmm. right? It's like, God, tr- Trump, <laughs> Trump, uh, uh, he did what? He, a two, a one-month uh, furlough of everybody? Yeah. Three-week furlough of everybody? They shut down the airport. And, and everybody was like, oh, my God, it's Trump is like a fascist, a full fascist. And it's like... I said on Twitter, I'm like, hello, like, have you heard of Phoenix? And, like, the Twitter, like, liberal bots were like, fuck you, Nori, do you want Sheer to get elected? And it's like, (laughs) right? And I'm like, will it shut you up? Then, yeah, actually, you made me a conservative today, right? (laughs) Um, The the reality is, is that, that like, if there is nothing standing on the neck of Justin Trudeau, he will not act. Like, it's as simple as that. And so the question for members of a union is, is what we have right now good enough? And you have to have that debate, right? You have to have the person to say, it is not good enough for me to live paycheck to paycheck. It is not good enough for me to have to reimburse my employer for wages that they paid me fucking six months ago because of this this debacle. And then you actually have that debate. But I think, you know, we're all kind of on the the broad left, not maybe the radical left, but the broad left is infected with the same kind of uh, fear of being controversial, right? You don't want to be controversial. And it's like nothing right now can be done without being controversial. Literally nothing. Like, I'm not even talking about shutting anything down. Doing, I mean, fuck, like, existence is controversial for a lot of people in this country. Mm -hmm. And when your existence is controversial, then any act that you take is going to be too much. And so we really do need to resist that, that message. It's like, well, we can't go too far. We can't push too hard. We can't demand too much because it's like, we have criminalized people's identity. We've criminalized people's existence. People's existence make other people uncomfortable, make the bosses uncomfortable. 
I mean, they're running roughshod over us. Like, Loblaws is just breaking the fucking law, and Catherine McKenna has no problem smiling and giving a fucking $12 million check to Galen Weston. I mean, these people have so little shame. It's mm-hmm. like, I mean, you can have, here, take some of my shame. Like, take some shame, please, right? And so, um, yeah, we, we need to be honest with ourselves about how bad things really are. And it, and it might be that you're still able to buy a bunch of shit from HomeSense and you still have a car and, like, things are still all right. But uh, um, the reality is that you can see it in our psychological problems, right? You can see that we're not happy. You can see that we're struggling. We're deeply isolated from one another. Depression is something that is, is, is so widespread that it's, like, you know, we're, we're just trying to medicalize it everywhere. And of course, there's a medical aspect to a lot of people needing to have treatment. But when we are a sick society, uh, think, well, things could get worse. Yeah, fuck, things obviously could get worse. Genocide is worse, right? Okay, cool. Th- there's a scale. Okay. Can we make things better? And the answer is also yes. Of course, we can make things better. And we can take some of that power back. And, um, and some of that action is going to be uncomfortable. And it's going to be difficult. And I got to say, I mean, anybody that's been on strike knows that that is it. It sucks, right? No one wants to go on strike because it's expensive and it's shit. And that's what the bosses know as well. And they want everybody to be afraid of, of, of going on strike or of any economic disruption. I mean, fuck, like Air Canada shutting down for a day would like literally blow the brains out of every NHL owner in this country, right? Mm-hmm. And so, because they all fly on planes to get to games. And so, um, we have to make these arguments. We have to convince people and, and show them through history what has been won through, uh, you know, I- I- like, have an abortion, thank the illegal abortion clinics that were firebombed uh, for, for the work that they did, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is literally what it took to make it possible and huge rallies and lots of public outreach and education and support and 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 mm-hmm. but people took tremendous risk and so that's the other thing too are you the kind of person that can take the tremendous risk if you are and you're not taking that risk like come up to the front of the room i will smack you right because w- if you are in a position where you can take that risk you must take that risk on behalf of people who can't mm-hmm. The other thing that I would say is that um, for those of us who are organizers in the room, especially union organizers, is that it may seem like it's not that bad for those who have the most power in the organizing, but I guarantee you that it is that bad for someone who is either represented by that union or is connected to the work the union is doing. And that's a problem like that has to do with organizing across difference and what happens with like entrenchment of leadership in unions it's a big problem because people can get comfortable lazy used to the status quo it becomes like this job it's not organizing you go in you do your thing you go you get out there are people who are living at the brink, and for whom it cannot get any worse. But they just don't necessarily have the power within the union structure to be able to sound the alarm of urgency and to make the big shifts happen that need to happen. And so in a situation where we're at today, where Norris talks about all these statistics and where we're at relative to where we've been, like we just have to know that absolutely we are at the worst at the brink for some people who are working alongside us. And so what does it mean if we can't see that? What does it mean if we don't know that? We have to make sure that we're diffusing power amongst people who 
need the power the most to be able to sound that alarm. Um, and so that's something that I would think about as well. Well, it's like we have to actually place the people who are most affected by these things at the center of our organizing, mm -hmm. right? It's like, it's as simple as that. And if, if, if the people that are calling the shots or, or running the show aren't the people most impacted by what's happening, then the strategy is always going to be weak. It's mm -hmm. always going to be watered down. It's not going to be what's necessary. It's going to be slow. It's not going to hit the right nodes of power. Um, and so, and sometimes there's like, you know, very real barriers in place to get the person or the person's most impacted at the center of that organizing. And so you have to figure out how to do it. You know, I mean, I, I was in a meeting recently um, where we were organizing um, against the religious symbol ban in Quebec, right? Today was the first day of the, of the commission, the parliamentary commission studying it. And we could not get anybody to be the spokesperson, right? No one like no one would be the spokesperson. They're like, no, not going to do it. Not going to stick my neck out. Not going to put get death threats. Not going to be afraid for my life to be the spokesperson for this. And it's a huge problem because it's like, well, we need someone to talk to the press. Right. And it's like, it can't be me. I mean, they're going to look at me and be like, you're not Muslim. Like we're not talking to you. Right. So, oh no, but I'm talking on behalf of people. They're like, no, 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 we don't want to talk to you. So it's like, how do you get past these barriers and hearing people's real fears? And, and you know, with the, the rise of the far right, like, my God, th there really is no simple answer. Like, mm -hmm. all we could say at the end of that meeting was, well, think really hard. We need someone. <laughs> if there's anything we can do, let's, let's figure that out collectively. But if there isn't, then, you know, we don't have a spokesperson, and that's a huge problem for our campaign. I see the hand. Is there anyone else? You know, get back to the microphone if you have other questions. I see a nice grin, Sean. I love it. <laughs> is, uh, and, I, and I should have, I, I, not a different, no, I'm not even. Other Sean. <laughs> no, 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 please. I don't jump in front. No, 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 please. Hi, Sean. Uh, three topics. Uh, <laughs> pick one. Very quick. You will remember this. Financial education in schools. Oh. I remain unconvinced. <laughs> I really do believe. Oh, we could fight. Really, I know. We can have a chat, but. <laughs> It's really needed. The kids these days, from what I've seen from my kids and the, their friends in school, they need something because it's it, more than math. Why don't they you back up a little bit? So anyone that sure, hasn't yeah. heard that uh, that issue, sure, that's we can one of the pot. It was, oh, geez, I don't know which episode it was, but there was an episode wherein I suggested to you guys that you do an episode on this, and you did. We did. Uh, and it was pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks uh, for the suggestion. Uh, not the main topic, though. Mine one, my topic is optional student unionism. We know how this is going to work out because it's already been done in Australia and New Zealand. It was a complete shit show. Mm -hmm. uh, af you know, after a year or two, the student unions just went down, and they had to undo that five years later just to get the students back, student unions back up to speed again. So we know how that's going to go. And I agree with you. It's a trial balloon for the right to work. Mm -hmm. The government is going to try it now and see if there's pushback now and they're going to learn they're going to learn one way or the other if there's pushback they're going to remember that mm -hmm. when they talk about when they think about bringing forward right to work if there is if there is a lot of pushback they'll remember and if there isn't they'll remember and and you can bet the next action will be dependent on the first action uh, phoenix don't get me started <laughs> seriously i don't know if you guys know this but the unions and the government came to a sort of deal, and the, the offer that they're going to give us is one week of leave for the last four years of Phoenix, <laughs> plus, plus whatever you can get out of the system now. But, but to, to, to provide for uh, the general malaise, if you will, across the civil service, a week of leave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Sandy is making a face. <laughs> it's it's um it's a thing. It's wow. a challenge. So you knew and you didn't. I was kind of wondering if one of you would know about that. But it's fuckery, man. Mm, which one to start with? Can I ask you what you think the kids should learn? Like, what do you what do what do you want them to know? <laughs> like, Golly, where do you start? And the banks can't be the ones offering it because they're, they're in a okay. At least we agree on that. Um, <laughs> But it's all the things that you need to know when you go to a bank. Like you're going to be paying lots of fees, so don't take out 20 bucks or 30 bucks or 40 bucks at a bank machine. You can go from that to you know bank fees and mortgage rates and why it's really important to get a half point less on your mortgage from one bank to, or one financial institution or co-op to another, because a half point sounds like not very much, but when you accumulate it over time over a 40-year mortgage over whatever your mortgage is. It's a lot of money, mm. and people don't get it, and adults don't get it, and the kids really, really, and that's the, that's the high-end extreme, but I mean, the whole gamut just isn't getting done in schools, I don't think, and kids are coming out, and it's like, wow, or maybe it's just my kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I learned about mortgage rates from my, 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 my father-in-law, so I mean, maybe it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the the problem there with that <laughs> the problem with that though too is okay so then that becomes an Ontario curriculum situation right and uh, what happens in all sorts of communities there's all sorts of communities where most of those kids are never going to buy a house like what do you do in a reality uh, where the curriculum across the board like that, a curriculum that talks about, I know that's just one example, right? Like that talks about mortgage rates or certain types of maybe investments and so on uh, is a recipe for a really awkward experience in the classroom with a lot of the kids who are never going to have that experience. Uh, for something like like bank fees, I'm like, make a flyer, yo. Like that's not a class. Like I just, I I don't know. Like I just, I think that, the, the foundations that we get at school with like, you know, addition and subtraction and, you know, compound interest and whatever, like that kind of stuff, which we do learn, right, is enough. Like we don't need a financial literacy class, which has been like the way that it's pitched is literally to tell pe kids how to take out debt. Like that's how it's been pitched in this province. And like... So, like, let's be clear that that's where where the baseline of our uh, what is coming from, because it is it, it's, it's like dreamt up from the banks to get kids used to the idea of debt and to encourage them to take out loans for school and other such things in their lives. It's it's a money making scheme. That being said, like, there's other there's there's other considerations that that need to be thought about like some people are poor, right? And like some whole communities are poor, right? I, I'm gonna, I've got another response too, so feel free to like challenge if you, if you feel like it, but I, I think that my response is actually airtight, um, as airtight as Sandy's, because Sandy's response is very good. I'm gonna add to it in a different way. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> well, because we haven't talked about this, because it, just, it yeah. just occurred to me, and I think you're going to like this idea. Okay. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a public education role to play about the ravages of capitalism. Right. 
And we don't learn about workplace fucking safety in schools. We don't learn about, like, the right to refuse unsafe work. We don't learn about marks. We don't learn about fucking the Winnipeg general strike. We don't learn about how to, you know, We don't learn about our bodies. Like, damn. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. No, but seriously. (laughs) Like, there's, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of of gaps in the Mm. curriculum. And the focus on financial literacy is because it sounds good and people recognize that there is like pirate capitalism plays on the fact that people don't know this stuff and uh, the the school system under capitalism is not gonna be what teaches kids about this stuff it can't be like you like we've we're already seeing like the gender studies class that was fought for and won by the miss g project Mm -hmm. like guess which one of the classes is being cut by Doug Ford that no one's going to be taking? It's all these electives like that, right? And so, you know, I'm always very uh, concerned about any mandatory class that takes away from the core curriculum that duplicates, as Sandy said, is is a problem. But this is my solution. I mean, if we had a public bank, their job should be public education, Mm -hmm. right? It should be through TVO and through educational materials, through a public bank. And it's like, so you don't learn that service fees are shit because, you know, you learn from some cheese-eating fucking grade 10 teacher, you're, I mean, I had great grade 10 teachers, but some of them eat a lot of cheese. Um, you you learn because the public bank is like, come to our bank, we have no fees, right? Don't get nailed on fees. Don't go to the, go. don't go to an ATM every single time that's four, $4 and take out $700 or whatever. But this would be a public education role through the public education mechanisms that we have, like TVO or like CBC, that we could actually put into action Everything that people talk about, the financial literacy stuff, from the perspective of a bank that or a, or a financial institution, because, of course, it could, d- could be a credit union, that teaches people all of this stuff so that you don't go to the Royal Bank and get fucked. Because you're not going to learn in school under any circumstances. You will not learn how to not get fucked by the Royal Bank because the Royal Bank wants kids to get fucked once they're adults, right? <laughs> I mean... There's, you know, they're very, they're not illegally doing Wants this to adults kids. adults to get fucked. Exactly. That's what she meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so this is, this is the problem with financial literacy. It's, it's like, it's hot. Everyone wants to talk about it. But the reality is, as we've said many, many times, that it's, it's just, it's not actually the issue. And I fucking heard, like, do, did you hear, um, like, do you listen to Because News on, on CBC Radio this past week? Fucking Rick Mercer was on. I fucking hope that guy listened to our goddamn podcast. No way does he. <laughs> Rick Mercer was, he goes on a fucking old man, no offense, rant about, <laughs> about financial literacy. I mean, he just goes, he's like, oh, the kids, they don't know financial literacy. And it was like, you could just hear the producers of Because News being like, damn, this is not funny, but this whole episode wasn't funny and we have nowhere else to fill it. Let Rick have his rant. About how the kids don't understand about money. And it's like, you cannot educate yourself out of, Record high yeah. household debt. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could educate yourself into depression about it, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> but you can't, like, teach yourself how to just be like, Pah. Yeah. Unless you're fleeing OSAP, which is this is how you get rid of it. You go to another country for seven years, and you don't have any contact with the federal government. Literally, that's the only way to get rid of your OSAP. And you can do that. I know people who've done it, and I strongly encourage people to do that. <laughs> Fuck the government. <laughs> okay, s- voluntary student unionism. Are there student union people in the room? Yay. That's what I thought. Um, do you mind giving us a little update? Like, what's happening on the ground? Like, tell us what's going on. You don't want to? Uh-oh. <laughs> that makes me very nervous. <laughs> I think it's complicated because, like, I'm in a weird context. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, like, 
basically things suck. Um, there's it's it's been pretty clear that there's a very limited number of things that are going to be considered to be mandatory um, that are affecting in some ways both the student unions and from my understanding also some of the university and college services as well. So that means mandatory fees that must be collected because when the government announced that they were going to do this voluntary thing where students, some students could choose what fees um, they contribute to, uh, they did say that some of those fees would be mandatory mostly from what my understanding is it's like health and sports. Um, sports! <laughs> But yeah, go sports, I, go sports. as you know, we we did think you know like a lot of the university and college administrators tend to be connected to the liberal party, so we did think that the government was going to punish them, to uh, for their disloyalty to the conservatives, and so um, that doesn't surprise me that it's going to impact some of the administrative services. Yeah, and so basically, I mean, I think it's there's I'm seeing a lot of different strategies where some people are sort of obviously fighting back against this um and trying how are to make people clear fighting back? yeah i mean i think there's there could be a lot more um i think some people are are trying to make clear like really messaging around this is why these services are important this is why um these mm -hmm. things are necessary um doing a lot of planning around educating all the students who are going to be incoming around these are what our services are actually offering to you, mm -hmm. and this is why you should be opting in or not opting out of, of our services. Um, and a lot of planning around how are we gonna get by on the shoestring budgets because that's what people have always figured out ways to do. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I mean, the, the situation that student unions have been placed in um, is, is horrible. It really is trying to destroy student unions on campus. There's no question about that. And Sean's right to mention um, Australia because we, we did see this. Um, the, the, the difficult reality is, I think a moment like this helps, it helps to go back to how student unions formed in the first place. I mean, student unions have always kind of been on campus, but they started really more as like fraternal organizations on campuses that were very different than what we have today, right? They're, they're organizations that would have supported rich, white, mostly male, student bodies. And the modern student union emerged in the 1960s and 1970s as, as revolutionary organizing across North America with among students. Across uh, the world, really. Across the world, uh, took hold. And so the idea that students would have their own money and do what they wanted with their own money was revolutionary and important. And so that's actually why student unions in and of themselves are political and progressive, even if you have a shit bunch of like hacks running your student union. The union structure is still a progressive space, right? Mm -hmm. And so Doug Ford attacking them um, is obvious uh, that, that he wants to destroy it and the student movement is in a situation right now where, where right, the, the, the reality is, is um, do we lay everyone off as per the, like our collective agreements because most are unionized? Uh, do we ignore this and just do business as usual and hope you know, to not have too much of a, of a problem? Do we, do we diversify the money that's coming in? Or do we, are we literally paralyzed by all of this and just kind of find a pile of coats and get into the pile of coats and hope no one notices us? It's weird. No, but I mean, like, that's, I think that's a strategy, right? I mean, hiding under coats? You know hiding under coats? No one notices you? Oh. Okay. She's referencing something real. <laughs> Ask us about that afterwards. <laughs> 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 okay, um, and so um, 
you know, can, the, 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 in an ideal world, student unions would be uniting and, and, and occupying Doug Ford's office and literally getting 500 guillotines around Queen's Park. So he's like, oh, my kryptonite, I'm freaking out. And then his head explodes and you're like, whoa, I didn't know that was why he hates the guillotine. I mean, the ho- neck hole's not big enough for him, right? Because, oh, wow. Well, I mean, <laughs> for his neck. Yeah, I got it. No, but it was really small. It was a smaller thing. It wasn't a real guillotine. It's true. I mean, come on, look at the pictures, right? It wasn't? Oh, I am shocked. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Doug, that blade, the blood on that's paint. Yo, it's not yours. <laughs> so um, the, that would be the ideal fight back is this massive, I mean, that's the ideal, right? And the reality is that people have freaked out and haven't really been able to mount that, that opposition. And Ford has done what he's done because he knows that that's the reality of, of where things are at. And the student movement in Ontario, like ever since the 70s, the student movement hasn't been as strong as it was, right? The 1970s, after the 1970s, every college student union in this province was taken over by their administration, mm-hmm. right? And so every single college student union, even the ones that are progressive, have administrators on their board of governors, on their board of uh, administrators of their, their council. And so, you know, the universities in some places, like, you know, Queens excluded and Western excluded and until more recently U of T excluded, were, uh, were doing what they could and being progressive. And that's where you get the Opergs, which also come out of the same radical tradition. And so now we're at a moment, again, where the liberal order is collapsing. The right is like, fuck it. Let's fucking do what we want. Like, take off our shirts and walk around like we own the place. And everyone's like, holy shit. Like, this, we actually could lose this. Mm-hmm. And the difficulty is that, you know, there, there were folks in the student movement who have always known that we could lose it and ha- had one perspective on how to organize. And there are folks in the students' union, in the student movement, that had a different perspective and thought, you know, if we play nice with government, maybe we can save this. And, um, I mean, I don't know. I was right. Sandy was I right. Was right? right? And, that, and that's, that's kind of the sad thing. Though the good news is something will take its place. Yeah. I mean, you know, nothing is permanent and, and whatever is not saved in the next four years. I mean, the fucking kids that are afraid of, like, the world ending because of s- global warning who are, like, 10 right now, they might come back and fucking do some shit. But we don't have to just, like, accept it also. Like, I, I just, I do think that there's, um, I can't tell anymore really what's happening because I feel like I'm so far removed from it even though I work on a campus. Anyway, (laughs) it feels very far from me, like not being like in a student union, but I can't see, I I am not witnessing um, a fight back in the way that you're talking about. And that is, that's, that's very, very dangerous for what happens, what the, what is going to come down the pipe for workers in this province. I think it's very, very dangerous. And I, it makes me very sad. It makes me like, um, really fearful um, about the ability of this government to scare people into submission because it seems like what's happening um, from the little bit that I can tell is people are trying to figure out what they can do with less, which is like, okay, maybe that's something you, you could spend some time on, but before we get there, <laughs> because... We don't actually know how much less it's going to be. We don't even know if they're going to be able to put it in place in time. Like, we don't know what it's really going to look like. We don't have one year of, of statistics to show us, like, what's going to happen. So before that, in the time where we don't know, 
let's not just take it lying down and instead use all the time that we're using to like figure out how to do more with less to do more right now with the money that we have right now before you know like the summer's over because that's when it's supposed to come in when the summer's over but you still get those summer fees coming in so fucking use them you got to use them anyway right it's like we're all nonprofits. you got to get down to zero so like <laughs> let's do away with you know party this event that and fucking like whatever it is whatever creative idea that it is and fucking take the government out at their knees and make them regret this policy make them make it so that they know that one you're paying attention and make sure that everyone's paying attention because there hasn't even been enough written on it like ah it's so distressing and for people who know the history of social change in this country uh, know how critical student unions and student organizing has been to social change and to creating some of the things that we very much value today in our society. Mm -hmm. And so does the conservative government. That's why they're attacking students' unions. Everybody needs to know this shit. Like, everybody needs to know. So I think it's like this summer is so crucial, so I'm just really hoping that, you know, maybe I'm wrong and people are just planning <laughs> for the summer to, like, roll out this massive campaign. Um, don't! Shake your heads at me. <laughs> <laughs> but if not, get to it, please. And don't sell your assets. <laughs> Seriously. We're not saying that to anyone in this room, but if you're listening and you have assets, don't sell your assets. <laughs> Seriously. No, no. Seriously. Seriously. No, this is... So, it's like, serious. For, for folks who are in the know... It is something that I know that some students' unions are contemplating. Before we even know what's happening in a year, some student unions are contemplating selling assets. Do not do that. Don't do that. Absolutely do not do that. Jesus, you should be declaring bankruptcy before that happens. Do not do that. Set up a fucking condo if, if you're in downtown to Toronto. fucking call me <laughs> to find out why, then do it. <laughs> Jesus. I was just curious, uh, should we be concerned about like propaganda, like news? So I don't know if you guys have heard of the Ontario News Now, which has forged propaganda, where he'll only let a minister, let's say, get interviewed by them instead of people like us being able to question why they're cutting education, putting autistic kids with more kids, cutting health care. So that's the question for you guys. Should we care about the propaganda, whether it's in the U.S. with Trump or, or what we're seeing in Ontario? And should we be building more our own voices, our own media platforms? And a second, I guess, unrelated question is, I don't know if you have any views on the role that universal income could play for society in terms of helping you know, people out uh, and maybe leveling uh, some of the income inequality or giving people a chance if they, if they come from a difficult start. Mm -hmm. We have a whole podcast episode on universal basic income that we encourage you to check out. We, our take may surprise you. <laughs> <laughs> we are, uh, you know, we have some critiques. We have some critiques of universal basic income. I, I don't know if we can get into the full conversation here with the time that we have, but suffice it to say that some manifestations of universal basic income uh, tear away services that the public should provide. It's used as a, a justification for saying, well, now we don't need public health care because everybody has a universal basic income and can afford the hospital. So as such, 
Uh, we will now start charging user fees for this, that, and the other, and that's something to think about. Um, and we go way deeper into that uh, in, t in the episode, which I don't remember which episode it is. Yeah, you have to look it up. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the one thing to, to maybe point to is, is we talk a lot about liberal schemes, and in universal basic income is a really good example of a liberal scheme where you, know, you can de design it well on paper, it might even work, but if it's, if it's something that is easily reduced while at the same time justifying the underfunding or the defunding of public services, then it's, it's bad. You know, it's like this, this is one of those things where it's like theoretical. Yeah, we can have a debate about the interesting citizen income or anything like that. But looking just at the pilot project on how that worked with the liberals, I mean, people got really fucked by that. Yeah. And, um, and that shouldn't have happened. I mean, that was mid-project. There were people on it. There were people who were really poor. They were really counting on that money. And the, and the conservatives were just like, fuck them. And, um, and there's no reason to believe that any other conservative government wouldn't do the exact same thing. The difference with public services is it's once you have a system, it's really hard to undo the system. And so that's what the benefit of the system is. In terms of propaganda, I think one of the things that's super helpful is to also remember that as the liberal order is falling away, so too are the organs of the liberal order, which is the fake neutral news system that we have. And so, I mean, I've, I've, I'm a news person. I love news. I love the Toronto Star, even if it's a, a liberal hack rag. Like, <laughs> I still love it. And um, the, the origins of news in Western democracy and in Canada specifically have always come out of propaganda tools from parties, right? Every, like, one of the first strikes, the first strike over the nine-hour workday was at the Globe, which was owned by George Brown, which is the, the Globe and Mail today, right, um, in the 1800s. And so that newspaper was a liberal newspaper at the time. And so, you know, I think that we need to be um, very sober in our critiques of these channels because they serve an obvious purpose. It's propaganda. And they are shitty with the mainstream press because the conservatives know that they can get away with not doing interviews. And so we need to be less angry that they're doing that. You can look at the tax money he's wasted on it. That's a, that's a fair argument to make, and they shouldn't be spending any money on it. But, I mean, that's what governments do. It's like, yeah, like what Ford's doing with the stickers on the gas pumps is way more outrageous. And he's still like, yeah, I'm going to fucking do it in my own, you know, deco label factory, probably. You know, we don't know that, but he probably will because he's super corrupt, probably. And so, um, <laughs> you know, you got to couch it all to make sure no one's suing me for those are, those are statements of opinion and theoretical thought, right? <laughs> um, theoretical thought. <laughs> and so, um, and so it, like, does it, does it attack uh, news integrity? Yes. Does it erode news integrity? Absolutely. Does it erode public trust in news? Yes. Um, is it surprising? No. Do I like to look at Lindsay Vansone's face? Not at all. Um, the, she's the anchor that they've hired to be the fucking thing yeah <laughs> and so um yeah let's let's call what it is is propaganda and fuck them and then where's the left's propaganda i think the 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 thing that we should all know is that when we are consuming any type of news that we never think that it's the truth there is no news that's the truth there's no news that's neutral there's no news that isn't coming at it from some sort of political being informed from a political space or political place and it's important for us to have the sort of media literacy skills that are necessary that's a good high school Whoa, class put that in. <laughs> it's a really great 
financial literacy yes worse. that's yeah. a great financial literacy <laughs> that's a great high school class because uh i think you know i think we all need skills of being able to decipher like what where the news is coming from what it's connected to and what the news is really doing when it's attempting to inform and perhaps maybe socializing or perhaps doing some sort of education or perhaps doing some sort of uh, political deed on behalf of a political party, right? Mm. Like there's there's all sorts of things that are embedded in our news that if you have uh, the necessary media literacy, you can you can read through it, but not everybody can, right? Um, and I think that the 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 question of where do we get our news is hard because it's personal. Mm -hmm. It depends on who you are and what you're looking to read, but. The more important thing is to understand that none of that news is going to be from some sort of neutral space. And any one of them that's telling you that is lying. That doesn't necessarily mean it's bad to listen to. I still listen to CBC every morning, right? Even though sometimes, man. <laughs> 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 but uh, that's the important thing to know. Hi. Hi. Hey. How's it going? Good. Super good. I'm super. I'm super glad to like finally talk to you two, like in person. Sorry, this is very inside here. I'll get to my question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so one thing I don't think. I mean, I came late, but um, nonprofits drive me insane. Ooh. And nonprofits drive me insane <laughs> because you have a bunch of usually older white women who don't want to try anything, don't want to do anything, and don't want to piss off whatever government is there because our funding, our funding. And I'm just like, well, if you have, That's if real. you're not challenging power, then what the fuck are you doing here? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can end the podcast right there. If you're yeah. not challenging power, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, okay. I'll, I'm going to uh, turn it over to the white lady on this panel. I mean. <laughs> what the fuck are you guys doing? I just whore <laughs> not-for-profits. Uh, yeah, I, the, the, that, is, that, is, that is what we, that's the effect of neoliberalism on the left, right? Is that, is that we have these organizations that range from original grassroots, really important, good work, all the way to someone's pet project because they were rich and they had a fucking weird inheritance, right? And they started something bizarre. <laughs> Um, and everything in between. <laughs> and so the problem is, is that has replaced activism, yeah. Yeah. right? People have like a fucking five bucks and then they're like, oh, I'll start a foundation rather than being like, just use your five bucks to buy someone lunch. Like, what the fuck? It doesn't need to be that like official, right? Um, and in the professionalization of the not-for-profit sector and of, of, of activism on the left makes it, it, it demarks it as being a privileged space. Right, so people are always trying to get access to boards. Maybe they're invited to tea to join one of these fucking things. I mean, I was once invited to like a thing of uh, two very famous brothers who do an international charity thing that I'm sure you probably. I have stories. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> it was the first time I had sushis in my life because I was from Georgetown, right? So it's like the first thing I remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was one of these situations like okay weird I'm being invited to this space right it's like this is not really open and this is it, it's it's people's pet projects, and the problem is when you look at uh, something like um, f the federal government's gender based bullshit, mm -hmm. right, right it's mm -hmm. everything funding BS mm -hmm. yeah yeah GBS right. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> 
So, like, a huge chunk of what makes it good for women is it's that you can just apply for any project that you have, Mm -hmm. which is, like, cool, right? Okay, we got funding available to do projects, but that is literally all we have then because the government, like, not only outsources any structural work, which is, like, okay, why don't you make a fucking um, childcare system? No, 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 no. We'll just, we'll just be feminists. We'll have fucking Catherine McKenna looking like a feminist. Fucking Christian Freeland is super for a fort. Oh, my God, French. It's uh, very, uh, <laughs> Christian Freeland's really strong, right? And so she's a feminist, and no one's going to fuck with her, right? And it's like, I would love the chance. And, um, and that's feminism, right? And so, and so they give, you know, whatever, $2 million, and people are, like, fighting each other for $2 million. In, um, in Quebec, what's happening, there's a huge network of public uh, uh, organizing that's funded by the government. It's a long tradition in Quebec, so it's a bit more sacred than, you, than in the rest of Canada. It doesn't really exist in the same way in the rest of Canada. But it's had the weird effect, even in Quebec, of making some of the most radical organizations have to be apolitical. And so they will not go to certain events, they will not support certain political parties, and they will not support certain public policies. And it's like, what in the fuck logic is that? And again, it's like, our, f- our funding, our funding. So it's like, you know, individuals are uh, bound by debt and, 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 and mortgages and all this kind of shit. Organizations are bound by funding promises from the federal government, and we are all collectively worse off for it. Mm-hmm. And the problem are women who look like me less hot, who <laughs> want the prestige, the control, the access, access to the fucking dinners with whatever the fuck minister wears a dress. Yeah. And, and then they call that a, a, a thing, right? So it's really, I, like, I don't have a solution in terms of how do we get rid of this because it really is kind of like organization by organization. Who is good? Who is bad? Who, does, who needs to be confronted? What needs to be taken over? Uh, it's <laughs> equal voice is a good fucking example. Holy shit. For example, okay, so um, I take up space like a white man, so I but will continue. You got one more question, you got to go. Okay, so, um, so here's the thing. Like, justice, d- like, have you guys watched Knock Down the House on Netflix? Okay, wasn't that the most inspiring shit ever? Okay, anyway. All this to say, I found out that Justice Democrats, you have to watch the movie, I won't explain it because I'm running out of time, um, started penning the Green New Deal. This is an organization that chooses candidates that are outside of the political system, trains them up, and puts them out there to run. They, I, I'm assuming that that's what equal voice is supposed to do for women. Okay. They have a weird mandate. I don't know what the fuck they're sh- supposed to do. I don't know why they're here. And then they fucked over the daughters of the vote. I'm just angry. So anyway, um, so where is the Justice Democrats in Canada? Where are the organizations who are fielding Real candidates from the working class, from marginalized communities, from people you don't hear or see in, in, in the greater public. Where, is that organi- where are those organizations mobilizing candidates? Maybe it's the writing system. I don't know. But it's like I'm looking at 
our politicians and I'm like, fuck, it's a bunch of substitute teachers out here. Okay. And I'm just like, <laughs> wow, like there is not a deep bench in Canada. So like the bench is like, you don't even have a six man. That's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? <laughs> so where is that? Well, That's my like question. You should start one of those organizations. But <laughs> who are you talking to? <laughs> like, but let me just say this one thing that uh, is important update. Charities in Canada. Previously, yeah, that's right. It, we're not allowed to do political work. And so that charities are allowed to access a whole bunch of grants and funding that not-for-profits who are not designated charities can't access. It's a lot harder to get any sort of grant or whatever as a not-for-profit than if you're a charity. And that was challenged last year, two years ago, last year. I think it was last year. That was challenged last year and as unconstitutional or against the charter. And uh, that challenge was won. And so now we're in a very new space. I, I believe they came out with uh, um, policies around this in August or September. I don't know if anyone else is following this. I am. Um, <laughs> I always have projects in my back pocket, just doing projects. <laughs> um, they came out with policies uh, um, around how they were going to measure this or like what the parameters were going to be around it uh, just in the fall. So this is all very new. So the time is nigh if you want to be able to access some sort of funding and do the type of political work you're talking about and the sky's the limit now because now no longer you'll see it on the website it says there's an important change charities are now able to do political work and that is a game changer for organizations that need to do fundraising and need to issue tax receipts because the biggest donors always want some sort of tax benefit or whatever. I don't know. I'm not that rich. I don't know how it works. Maybe I could use a financial literacy class to explain it to me. <laughs> Maybe it'll never matter for me. <laughs> uh, but, but that is an important change for th folks who are maybe thinking about starting such organizations. Uh, it's, a, it's a really important change that might change the game. Yeah, the question though is who's training outsiders to come in, right? I mean, I think that um, I think the Liberal Party showed us that they fucked up in 2015 <laughs> by by inviting people in who didn't fit, and we're seeing what happened to them now, mm -hmm. right? Like one of the weird particularities about the Canadian like partisan system is there's a lot less room for dissent here than in the United States. Right, the two-party system sucks, but there's a lot of dissent within the ranks, and there's like that fucking like bipartisan caucuses or cockeye or whatever, and um, uh, things that bring people together <laughs> across the across the world. It's not it. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever. Um, and so that's uh, so there is more space for uh, an AOC to be like, I'm gonna fucking take down a giant, right? Like, there's not even I can't even think in Canada what the the a version of that would be because that person once elected would be handcuffed, mm -hmm. you know, because there's so many ways to handcuff them. I mean, look at the Ontario legislature. There's a lot of really good people that got elected yeah. um, on the NDP side. And, you know, people are doing what they can, but considering that there's fo like four, the juggernaut is like coming for us. And the NDP is like, Hey, you know, like, like for the for the <laughs> amount of radical folks who are in the caucus of the of the Ontario NDP, they are doing f not much mm -hmm. slash 
I don't know what they're doing, right? Like, I know people are trying. And so then, then the question becomes, okay, so then where's the real problem? It's a structural problem. Uh, do, do heads need to roll within these political parties? Do you need to actually have, is there a critical mass? Is it 10 people that it takes to change a caucus? Or is it, uh, is it one firebrand, right? Um, and this is where we got to talk to folks who have gone through it uh, quietly about their experience mm -hmm. and see what happened. I mean, what, what is it like to be an outsider in the Liberal caucus it celebrated for being a, an outsider, new, or bringing in racialized people into the Liberal Party of Canada, and then all of a sudden, mm. right, yeah. they're gone. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the answer, I don't know why, obviously, um, and I don't know what the organizations are looking to that, but equal voice is like, fuck, man, I don't know, right? Like, mm. I, uh, the first time I met them was a decade ago, and I had this, I was like, cool, like, I actually don't want conservative women to get elected, so fucking peace, right? <laughs> 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 okay. Thank you so much for coming. This has Thank been so you. much fun. Yeah. <laughs>